Have you tried my new favorite cocktail? Anytime Spritz is a new farm-to-can cocktail company that I've been drinking, well, anytime I want to drink. Their cocktails have a transparent ingredient list, and they're all farm-fresh products that I can pronounce and have in my kitchen, so I feel good about what alcohol I'm putting in my body. They use an organic vodka, because why aren't we all drinking organic alcohol, and 100% real fruits and herbs. I feel like there's a bartender in my house who just distilled fresh organic vodka and then picked fruit from a garden and made me a cocktail to go. If you want a cocktail that's flavorful, not too sweet, and fresh, try Anytime Spritz. Bring it to your next dinner party or for your next outdoor adventure. Find your closest store or order it online at www.anytimespritz.com. Wait, is it Muchia? Mucha. Mucha. Yeah. I've said it wrong my whole life. I know. Well, it's not a real name, which is what's crazy because we got really into this. As a <laughs> what do you mean it's not a real name? <laughs> so I wanted to name, uh, I wanted Hella's middle name to be Mucha. Stop. And Gabriel was like, no. But then I got really into it because I was like, what does it actually mean? And I looked it up and it's not an Italian name. And she was actually born with a different name too. And she changed it. Because I know Mew Mew is the nickname, which is yeah. why she la- named the line after that. Yeah, she was born Maria Bianchi Prada. Okay, Maria Bianchi. And then I guess somehow down the line that changed to Mucha. I think it's like a Miley Cyrus type thing, like a yeah. smi- smiley no, into sure. Miley. Actually, that is like the most Italian thing I've ever heard because none of my, none of my great aunts and uncles were named what we called them. Yeah, I feel like any um, strongly Christian nation has inherently limited name options for all genders. So then they get crazy creative with the nicknames to differentiate everyone. It happens a lot with the Russian community that my husband's family is a part of. I learned last year that my great aunt's name was Vincenza and her brother was Vincenzo. (laughs) And I never knew because neither of them went by those names. Hi, I'm Ruby Redstone. I'm a fashion historian, writer, and a certified Prada expert. Um, Harper's Bazaar gave me that title once, and I think I should add it to my resume. I'm Natalie Brennan. I'm a podcast producer, a writer, and like Mucha Prada herself, sono italiana. (laughs) Oh, I'm jealous now. (laughs) And this is Covered, a show about our favorite moments in fashion history. This week, Prada's 1999 fall-winter collection. Okay, to start, I think it's important to ask, are you a Prada or a Mew Mew girl? Okay, this is something that's actually on my mind constantly. Um, I wrote a whole piece about it back in the day when I wrote for Man Repeller. It's about how I really look forward to growing into a Prada woman, but I still don't feel like I'm a fully actualized one. And I actually think it's super important to have, it doesn't have to be a brand, obviously, because that would be quite Uh, materialistic of us but just this vision of like a woman who you'd like to be when you're older and it's something I talk about with my mom a lot anyway I feel like I've been a Mew Mew girl for many years now and I actually for the first time ever feel like I'm starting to outgrow that a little bit I'm definitely more drawn to the brand of femininity that I see at Prada these days than to like the micro mini skirts at Mew Mew and when I started noticing that poll last year, I was super surprised. Like, maybe I'm I'm finally becoming a woman, which is exciting. Congratulations. <laughs> That's so huge for you. I actually think that I'm a secret third thing. I'm not sure I'm a Mew Mew or a Prada girl. I 
think I'm a Prada sport girl. A thousand percent. Yes. Like I, it makes me wish that Prada sport still existed in full because that is that's you. The little red label I go crazy for. No, but I am really dedicated to old Miu Miu. It's my favorite brand. You can absolutely miss me with the unkempt <laughs> mini skirt. That is not my style at all. And I don't totally love the direction of the unhemmed garments that's that have been happening. Yeah, yeah, we're both in agreement on that. But in terms of archival, my favorite collection of all time is a Miu Miu collection. And it also <laughs> just so happens to be from 1999. So I am going to have a really hard time today just focusing on the Prada line from that year. Yeah, you get one minute up top to talk about your Miu Miu Spring Summer 1999. And that's it. That's Totally fair feedback. I'm actually going to save my minute, but I do think that it is important first that we do a little quick history on the difference between the two brands. Yeah, I agree. So to be super brief, Mario Prada founded Prada in 1913 as a provider of fine leather goods in Italy. They actually mostly um, imported exotic skins from England into Italy, which is kind of a weird confluence of worlds. Um, but the brand basically remained this way until Mucha Prada, who's Mario's granddaughter, took helm of the brand in the late 70s. She completely revamped their accessories and then she launched Ready to Wear in 1988. Um, I think it's fair to say that essentially since that day, she's been one of the biggest powerhouses in fashion design and in design in general. I really think we're only just beginning to understand the true scope of her genius. Genius. Yeah. yeah. She's a genius. <laughs> um, needless to say, she's a personal hero of mine. As I was just telling you, my husband actually vetoed me naming either one of our daughters after her. So that says a lot about how much I love her. I do ultimately think that he was right in that regard. And she is everything to me. I'm like, every time we say Muchia Prada in this episode, I just hear like little angel bells going under it. Muchia Prada. To continue on with this history, uh, as you said, she had launched Prada ready to wear in 1988. And then in 1992, she launches Miu Miu. She starts launching collections in 1993. And from the start, they are super experimental and playful. I think the very first collection is that cow print, cowboy yes. hat collection. It's either the first or the second um, from the year 1993. I like to think of Miu Miu as Prada's younger sister. Yeah. Mucha is the youngest in her family. And as a youngest sister myself, I think what I'm so attracted to is that like rebellious, unruly spirit that really comes through from the start of the brand. Maybe this goes deeper because I'm an older sister. You're an older sister. I think you're Prada older <laughs> sister and I'm Miu Miu baby sister. Wow. And if you look at my sister, that actually really adds up. She's a but Miu Miu baby. <laughs> yeah, she is. <laughs> Wow. Also, I, I just have to say here that I really miss, I mean, Miu Miu transformed into something of its own and it's now like probably Prada's biggest competitor, even though they're within the same family. Um, I miss the idea of diffusion brands and like younger sibling brands because that was such a big part of the 90s and early 2000s. And I really think it does demonstrate this like almost generosity that designers used to have of trying to bring in a younger audience who wasn't buying at the same level as older customers. But then as we've seen, that's kind of unsustainable. We don't have Mark by Mark Jacobs anymore. We don't have Miu Miu. We don't even have Prada Sport. So although now we have Heaven by Mark Jacobs, which is yeah, we could save our commentary on that okay. for another time too. <laughs> yeah, totally another time. But no, I totally feel you. And as we're about to get into, there was this entire push in the 90s to be very like 
refined, formal, a backlash to the 80s extremism. So then I think it's fun. And Prada really was at the helm of that. And then I think it's fun to be like, fuck it, Miu Miu. And it's so cool and like just such a testament to her greatness as a designer, Mucha, that you could design for two very different women and then create a long lasting brand out of both of those ideas. It's like basically unheard of. Once again, a genius. Okay, we could go over the history between the two differences between the brands for truly an entire season. And also, perhaps we should. (laughs) Just Prada podcast. (laughs) But I must pivot us to the season of choice, Prada Fall Winter 1999. Yeah, should we get into it? Let's cover it. Time to cover up. Time to cover up was for me the worst possible idea because I, I, did, I wanted to do anything possible except fashion. Fashion is art. I always said that for me fashion is not art. Well, of course it is. Fashion is art, fashion is not art, but at the end, who cares? You know, a lot of this is to whip up the excitement to sell yet another pair of shoes. Yuchia always leads the pack. The minute people catch up to her, she goes and does something else again, and she's always one step ahead. I think she's like uh, one of the great, great mavericks. We need this kind of energy, and she needs to push the buttons of people because people are so bored and so bland and so blah and so bourgeois and so banal and so bitchy and so stupid and so beastly that we need to have this kind of thing in fashion, this kind of mutual brother moment. I mean, it's totally lift me up out of the doldrums of the quagmire of Milan, the quagmire of Milan. Normally, I'm very, very opposed to making trend predictions. It's not something I'm interested in doing. But last fall, I wrote in my newsletter that I thought this Prada Fall Winter 1999 collection was due to blow up. And then literally the next day, that uh, gorgeous TikTok star, Nepo baby, Iris Law. She's so beautiful. She's so (laughs) She's an alien. Um, she posted a picture in the very boots from this collection that I'm obsessed with. And I think like 40 people must have DM'd it to me being like, how did you know this was going to happen? That is so funny. And like, of course you did. I am seeing this collection all over Depop right now. We both have a lot of theories on why. But first, I think we need to describe what this collection looks like. Yeah, this collection really has the dynamic contrast that I think is at the heart of every really good product collection. I mean, it's at the heart of every product collection, even the less good ones. Um, You've got super minimal 90s shapes, these bib front tops, slip skirts, sleek boots, but then they're adorned with leaves and bugs made out of patent leather or weird chunky sequins. There's sumptuous suede and there's rough nubby wool. Um, And also it's a collection that's perfectly emblematic of this theory that my design mentor taught me years ago. She was like, oh, if you want to get the magic effect of Prada in a collection, you just have to choose three good colors and one ugly one. Okay, let's name in this collection the three good ones. Oh, okay. Wait, I'm curious as to what you think they are. In terms of the goods and the bads? Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, in my opinion, the goods are like beige, purple... Let's say this. The bad one, green. Yeah, yeah. The bad (laughs) one is the green. No, I couldn't agree more. Beige, purple, gold. Yeah, I think you've got this really pretty purplish pink. You've got a warm brown, a burnt orange that's nice and autumnal. Oh, the orange. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's this like disgusting vomit green. And we, I used to play around in the studio with color swatches to test out this theory, and it really does work every time. Also, like it works if you just want to do a weird color, like a coral or kind mm-hmm. of any any vomit shade, really works <laughs> well. <laughs> 
I need everyone to know that Ruby is sitting here in front of a giant Prada book. (laughs) Yes, it's the Prada Catwalk book. This one is edited by Susanna Frankel from another magazine, but it's the best $70 I've ever spent because it's literally got every look in it from every season of Prada's history. It's also got beautiful writing from Susanna and takes from Mutra Prada and press releases that the brand put out. It's part of the Catwalk series, which are these big coffee table books put out by Thames and Hudson and Yale University Press. Um, You've probably seen them. There's like a hot pink Yves Saint Laurent one. But if you're pedantic like me and you're constantly wanting to reference one specific look from a show that you liked, yeah, yeah, get one of these books. They're fabulous. As we're having this conversation, one thing that's helpful is that Prada and Miu actually has all of their archive online, but we specifically have linked the exact pieces that we are referencing in our newsletter at covered.substack.com so you can follow along with us, but we will be giving our best descriptions of the collection, which, Ruby, I'm hoping you can read us a little bit from the Prada book. Um, Okay, well, I'll I'll just read us a little excerpt from the book. The tension between function and fantasy continued for the autumn-winter 1999-2000 season with the collection that was quintessential Prada from the jeweled chiffon coats and jackets with neat pointed collars, belted at the waist with slim bands of leather, through the zip-front khaki sweaters and matching track pants, to the strange coloration, square toes, and high sculptural heels of the model's boots. A contrast between an almost pastoral beauty, leaf and petal embroideries, and an essentially urban and artificial one, luxurious parkas and gilets and technical fabrics, was evident also. With the new millennium dawning, Mucha Prada continued to drive fashion forward. This runway was more replete with ideas and intelligence as far as their realization was concerned than any other designers of the age. That's a pretty succinct description of what the collection is. It's playing with tension, and mostly I think what it's known for is that the collection has a lot of pieces with really small details, whether it be the leaves or it be the gems that line the end of a hem, or if it's a little bug that's attached onto a shirt, the collection is known for these like flashy little details. Get me the little bug. (laughs) (laughs) Can you describe one of your favorite looks from the collection for me? Um, One of my favorite looks is actually worn by a baby Giselle Bündchen, which is so crazy to think that she was ever a baby, ever a baby, and also (laughs) modeling for Prada. Prada, yeah. (laughs) So not her vibe now, but that's okay. She's got one of these bib front tops, which actually, um, as our beautiful Prada Catwalk book discusses, were introduced this season and kind of became a late 90s, early 2000s Prada staple. I think visually it's best for the listener at home to kind of picture the silhouette of what looks like a modern day corset, but cropped. Yes, exactly. And it's got, I think it's four pieces of boning down the front. So it is very corset-like, but a little bit softer and done in this pretty purplish wool. And then she's got a very low slung burnt orange skirt and the skirt has these leaf embellishments all around it. And that's really what draws me to this collection every fall. They're in these like amazing bright purple glass beads. And then the shoes from this collection are just, I think, some of the best Prada shoes of all time. So she's got on some knee-high brown and orange. They're a mix of patent and regular leather boots with this super chunky heel. It's just an amazing look. And it's like she's uncovered up top with this light little tank top. And then she's fully covered down below with this long skirt and high boots. And I just love that, that type of tension. I gotta say, miss me with those leaves. No. I do not care for the leaves. I don't care for the leaves because you know what? 
it's so blatantly fall in a way that I yeah. don't love. I don't love dressing in ways in which one garment can only be worn at a specific time and it's so giving fall, but I do really like the attention to detail and I love the shimmery essence. I mean, I I low-key am Christian girl autumn, despite being a, a summertime leaning Jewish girl. Um, so, so I just fully support this. I literally have a collection of Halloween sweaters. I've got a scarf that says autumn on it. I love Halloween. I love I love crispy leaves. Well, you're getting it in this season. I think I have two favorite looks. I love when Prada does the underwear look down the runway with a top and so I love this one where it is in that that green color that we've discussed she's in like a sleeveless high neck top just paired with these brown underwear I will say if you look up this collection and you aren't totally loving it when I watched it in video form of everyone coming down the runway it did really change it for me yeah and I really think that's um Again, another hallmark of of what makes Prada so amazing is I think that it is really clothes that are meant to be worn out in the world. They look better in motion rather than they do in a still photo. And I always find if I'm out getting a coffee or whatever, I do a triple take at someone wearing a Prada piece in person because there's just always that extra level of craftsmanship or detail, even if it's not, you know, a patent leather bug. <laughs> there's something, I was just looking at this one with an amazing Prada bowler bag yesterday when I was out. There's always some element of super detailed richness that draws you back to it. It just doesn't, it doesn't totally do it for me. I think that there are certain pieces and details that I adore. This trim with a line of square jewels around the ending. And I really love that. I actually hunted down a skirt that must be from this year, but not part of the runway collection that has these orange jewels lining the hem of the skirt. But the collection as a whole, I'm not sure. It's not one of my favorites cohesively. That's slander. But actually, I totally get it. This collection is really repulsive in the way that Prada can often be, especially when Prada is at her least commercial. I don't think you're alone in this thought at all because this collection actually didn't sell very well. Very little of it was produced, which makes it now kind of a collector's collection, if you will. <laughs> I you're being nice in saying that I was not alone in that uh yeah it wasn't at the time it didn't cohesively sell but it is very revered as one of the best collections of all time and I'd actually love to play you some tape of someone who deeply agreed with you yes please and I think she's like uh, one of the great great mavericks we need this kind of energy and she needs to push the buttons of people because people are so bored and so bland and so blah and so bourgeois and so banal and so bitchy and so stupid and so beastly that we need to have this kind of thing in fashion, this kind of mutual brother moment. I mean, it's totally lift me up out of the doldrums of the quagmire of Milan. Um, that's actually a clip of me and my husband sitting on the couch at midnight while I argue for why our next daughter should be named Mucha. <laughs> it's Andre Leontali. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I actually, I do miss him now. Why? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think watching that actually kind of like changed my opinion on it. I think when I was looking at it, I was so caught up in the pull of Y2K. And this for me, it's not something that was like pulling me into the future. Have yeah. you read 1004 by Ben Lerner? No. Okay, I'm sending you home with it. 
but it's all about like it's a text that's referencing this other text where one of the lines is like it pulled us into the future and that's how I always think of Y2K but I think that's a little bit too simple-minded to think that like the collection right before the term of the millennium had to be doing so much into like creating something fully new but I guess what I would be picturing when I think about the Y2K is actually happening on a runway <laughs> very close to this one. It is now my time to give you a little bit of an intro to uh, Miu Miu's Spring Summer 1999 collection, which is what I think of as a little bit more futuristic. It's a little bit like these girls look like they are taking me somewhere and I will let them. They are they look like they are on a mission, but the mission is simply to flirt. Like they do kind of almost look like they're an army, uh, but yeah. the army just wants to like be, be cute. cute. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's something that kind of just fascinates me as a historically minded person is just thinking about all the different narratives of taste and of design that happen within a certain moment. Like not everything Y2K is silver and shiny or cropped or, you know, this does have low-waisted skirts. So I'm we'll give like, it that. If computers but... everywhere were about to shut down, I don't know that I need to be covered in leaves. <laughs> oh, come on. But I feel like it's perfect in that sense that like you'd be back in the moss and the leaves and the dirty, damp earth. Like that actually feels more Y2K to me than being like, in astronaut boots and okay, headphones. Okay, that's such a good take. I yeah. actually like that. It's it's a back to the land. Yeah, return to, a, return, return, to, return the to the land collection. <laughs> it's the quagmire of Milan. It is the quagmire <laughs> of Milan. Okay, but earlier you said that it didn't totally sell very well, this collection. It was more of like a collector's collection. But how do items wind up from the runway to my closet? Wow. Honestly, we'd need to devote a whole episode to that process. Again, this is something that could be a whole series of its own. There's no easy answer to this question because the methods of producing clothes and putting them on the runway changes so rapidly these days. And also now we have brands following their own different systems and calendars. But in the somewhat direct and easy days of the 90s catwalks, you'd have buyers watching shows. These are the people who choose the clothes that are sold in department stores and boutiques as well as within a single brand store. So Prada will have its own in-house buyers and then somewhere like Bergdorf Goodman will have different ones. These are the people who predict what clothing they think will sell well. They put in an order for how much they'd like to see in their store. And then those numbers dictate roughly how much of each thing a designer will have their factories and craftspeople produce. Dang. So there's no way to tell if when you're buying something like archival from the runway, if it was actually worn on the runway, right? Oh, there is. But okay. this is <laughs> that's even more rare because everything you see on a runway, again, this is changing now because you can produce clothes a lot faster. But in general... Anything you see on the runway is a sample, so it's usually a one-of-one one or one-of-ten maybe trial pieces that a designer has made. It's not the finished product. And then this is also an issue with now if you go to pre-order clothing, something might look amazing on the runway and the way it has to be produced for mass market is different. Okay, that's interesting. I've always wondered because when you see people selling this on retail, they're always obsessed with showing you like that it was from the runway. And I was like, how many are made from the runway? But it all depends on whether or not the buyers were betting on how well it would do. Exactly. Most of the time, those listings or those people are showing you things that were styled in the runway collection, not necessarily the piece that was on the runway itself. Um, if you're a crazy shopper like me and you're always on eBay or like trying to 
dig through people's stuff at garage sales. Um, you can find pieces that were actually on the runway. They usually look super different. They will have hand stitching in them. A lot of them don't have labels or they have the label tacked in weirdly. And so that's like a whole other level of obsessing over runway shows that I don't really think benefits any of us, but sometimes it's cool to have. <laughs> okay. So for this collection, what I'm hearing is that because so little of it was produced, then getting your hands on one of these items became a little bit of a bigger deal. Exactly. And I think it's really cool to see that now um, with all kinds of designers, but I think it's been happening a lot recently with Prada of seeing people kind of clamor for these older collections and creating this whole new market. And I find that actually really special. Sometimes it bums me out because, you know, we end up getting charged 20 times more than something totally. cost back in the day. But I think it's really cool for these collections that weren't commercially viable at first to get a second shot at life and kind of a new recognition of their beauty. Why do you think that this collection specifically is blowing up so much right now? Yeah, this is something that I've been, I, I want your take on this too. Yeah. I, I want people to write in and tell us their takes because <laughs> uh, I have a lot of questions about this myself. But what I really think makes it super appropriate right now is this return to the land aesthetic. This Yeah, it's uh, happening again. Yeah, reverence for nature. And I do think that in a certain sense, this collection is very antithetical to the other trends we've seen pervade social media. It relies a lot on kind of things that are intentionally ugly, things that are super, super detailed, like you need to be up close and personal to see that there's a tiny little beetle attached to the side of the shoe or that, you know, there's also one beaded daisy mixed in with the leaves on the skirt. Yes. And so I love things like that because that's part of the lived experience of clothing. It does photograph really, really well, um, better with an iPhone camera than with, you know, the old school runway cameras of the 90s. It's working for the modern girls. <laughs> exactly. And it's kind of like... It's almost, I'm hesitant to say this because I don't want to create a false comparison, but it's almost um, Lisa says ga adjacent in that it's got these super cutesy details on pieces that are relatively simple. And I think that does just appeal to a certain type of girl now. It's also muted in its color palette. It's not these super strong primary colors or sometimes the product colors can be, these are ugly, but they're not jarring in the way that like a mustard yellow and a bright red can be. They're, they're neutrals for yeah. fall. Yeah, I'm interested in this idea that it's almost the middle grounds between this Lisa Says Ga big wave that we saw the last couple of years and this muted 90s look that more generally our culture is kind of obsessed with right now. So this collection really feels like the middle grounds between the two. I also think that we're like amidst a big shift and nothing has come to fill it yet. So I think like Agreed. we are feeling out this season right now, but we're not in the like Victorian, super femme, girly, big prints, bright colors era anymore. That was kind of in the like Trump years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, a thousand percent. And we haven't fully succumbed to a muted 90s look. And so I think right now we're seeing people like really try and figure out what the new look is going to be. Yeah, all we have in Joe Biden's America is quiet luxury. We have quiet <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the second oh, yeah. thing that I really think is happening is that stylists right now are really into dressing celebrities in archival fashion. If you see somebody on a magazine cover right now, there's a big chance that their stylist pulled something from a collection from the 90s. And so then I think that there's this cultural currency right now to also wearing something archival 
from the 90s. Um, and I think this is like a good gateway collection. If you're not somebody like us who likes to scroll through collections with their morning coffee, then this is a buzzy collection that can like suck you in. It's like you're seeing on your Depop feed 1999 Prada and then you're looking up the collection and being like, oh, wait, this is sick. Yeah, totally. Um, and that's totally how I got sucked into a lot of my favorite collections. I started seeing pieces tagged from the exact same year and then I was like wait a minute let me see what's going on here and that is how I wound up in Mew Mew's fall winter 1999 sweet little chuckled <laughs> I know and I think it's really funny to see that happen with various designers that like we said it's been happening a lot with Prada and Mew Mew but I've just started seeing I'm not very plugged in on TikTok but I'll see people on TikTok sharing clips of like the McQueen collection with the robot spraying dresses being like, this is amazing. And yeah. it's really funny now to feel like we're reaching a point. I mean, I don't think I'm old. I'm 28, but that no, I saw that happen. So baby. <laughs> I saw that a happen. baby with two babies. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm old because I'm a mom. But um, uh, I saw that happen the first time around. And now I'm watching people rediscover it. People who I also think would consider themselves fashionable or followers of fashion. So that's really fascinating to see that that point of discovery for people okay which brings me into my other theory that I have about this collection which is that this collection has actually always been super popular always very relevant always at the helm of the conversation it's just that there's more of us now in on the conversation one uh not to bring in a close reading analysis of the text, <laughs> but in 2012, uh, there's this song that's Two Chains, ASAP Rocky, and Rick Ross. <laughs> and in ASAP's verse, there's this part that's like, I'm the shit, all designer shit, got all kinds of shit, got Prada from around 1999 and shit, but you won't find that shit. I'm on my, I think he says then, like, I'm on my Anna shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and like, that folks is what we call a primary <laughs> document like it already had this like connotation if you were somebody who really cared about fashion which which has always been really infused into rap culture and so my theory is that this collection has always had attention and now there are just Instagram collectors who became really viral for selling these pieces from these years and that is actually what's new I couldn't agree more. I also have a crazy person theory about this collection that I think gives it one more little just kind of bit of spice that makes it even more appealing these days than it was in 1999, which is climate change. Um, when this... Go off. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I will. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that this collection is a perfectly designed fall winter collection for a world afflicted by climate change because it's all crop tops and slip skirts but in fall fabrics like suede and wool oh so you can be really warm out but you're still incorporating wool into your outfit exactly like come on mm. little underwear shorts with a suede jacket that's like basically what i end up wearing by accident now that's because true. i want to commit to my fall outfit but i can't it's not fall. Yeah. It's never fall. Yeah, exactly. Wow, here I was, small-brained, thinking about the pull of Y2K when actually the whole time it was something much bigger. It was, it was climate change. 
that's automatic. I see no need for me to tweet. These bitches know my status. Honest shit, all designer shit. Got all kind of shit. Got pride of rap from 1990 shit. Bet you won't find a shit. I'm all my honest shit. That's winter. As two professional internet searchers, we have found some perfect 1999 items just for you. We've linked our recs in our show notes. Before we head out, it's time for the accessory. Just like your favorite Mew Mew butterfly bag or tiny gold hoops, right before we leave, we'll be adding on one more thing, just for fun. Okay, I've got a scary question for you today. (laughs) Okay, please tell me. I want to know what your worst fashion era was. Yeah, I honestly don't even have to think about this one. You know immediately. I I know immediately. It's so bad. I mean, it's not bad because I try to not be ashamed of any of my past looks. I'm super grateful that I grew up in a house where I was allowed to experiment with my clothes and my hair and everything. But I just had a really bad grunge phase at age 15. Um, the the pinnacle right of this, before I met you. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. It was sophomore year of high school, um, which I think is a bad time for everyone totally. in general. <laughs> but the the pinnacle of the issue with this um, was encapsulated by the fact that I had to have my school photo retaken. No, because my mom was like, "I'm not sending this out to your family." I vividly remember I had such greasy hair because I was obsessed with my like Debbie Harry like greasy long roots bleached hair, which I still have, but I just keep it clean now. <laughs> um, and a ripped up skull t-shirt with no bra it was like ripped down to my belly button I can't (laughs) even picture this it just looked so bad like it didn't even look cool you know I was really into like a grungy outfit with Mickey Mouse ears and so weird confluence of like actual grunge plus Tumblr culture which like yes yeah didn't benefit any of us yeah and yeah sometimes my sister will just dig up a photo and be like haha remember this and you, if you if anyone with a sibling probably knows yes. that yeah it's it's easy to just um really get under your sibling's skin by finding the ugliest photos of them <laughs> I was I knew you wouldn't go but I'm like mohawk face yeah okay so that I actually stand by <laughs> um Natalie's referring to the fact that I had a mohawk um at age 13 but you know what I'm glad I did it because yeah. then years later you know early 20s when everyone was shaving their head I did not feel the urge to do it you knew I knew I was like I know what that's like uh I don't need to do it again and I backed that like I had such an unshakable confidence at that no, age. It was, it's so sick. <laughs> that I truly don't think I have now. And it was in that time in my life that we moved from New York City to Kentucky. And everyone had long blonde ponytail yeah. and played field hockey. And I had a mohawk. You were like, fuck this. Wait, how long were you in Kentucky for? Two years. Wow. Yeah. The hidden years. The hidden years. <laughs> And I just kept it. I was like, I bullied, <laughs> bullied within an inch of my life. And I was like, I don't care. Yeah. You guys are all lame. And and I just don't know if I would have the strength to stand by it now. So I back that way more than yeah, kind so of the cool. like insecure, grungy, like wanting to feel like I go to parties and wearing actual stuff from Party City on top of like a nasty old thrift store outfit. I can't wait for these photos to come through. Yeah. But that was the moment, you know? <laughs> That was the moment. Okay, high school for me, I kind of wasn't even thinking about. My my worst era was sophomore year of college. Ooh, um, not okay. sophomore year. Of- sophomore year of college was bad too. It's always a bad year. It's always a bad year. I think what happened for me, 
high school was fine. I actually, in the suburbs, it was so easy to get away with just being like indie Alexa Chung, like whatever, wearing my little headbands and my like, I mean, I basically just looked like I walked out of a free people catalog, but for the time, fine. Yeah, whatever. cute. Then went went through a weird thing when I was going to college where instead, and I think this is where all of the worst phases come from. I went through this phase where I was just like so confused about who I was and where I was when I first got to college that I kind of just went like fuck it hot mode. Yeah. And totally lost like sense of style in just trying to like figure out what this new wave was for me. And then... The worst point was then when you reject that was the baggy clothing, like trying to turn into like cool, but in a not knowing which direction way. A thousand percent. And the directionless baggy, I don't know what my style is except for trying not to be the dominant style, bad. Yes, it was a lot of like bad monochrome that didn't actually totally match. Like mm. it clashed a little bit in just some trying to like didn't have the right items yet, but was trying to make a new look work. Yes. And then for some reason, I just keep thinking about like there was this like big oversized shirt that I wore, like no pants and then like Tiva platforms. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it just was like not working in retrospect when I look I'm just like oh no you were you were trying really hard and like good for you for like rejecting the phase that really didn't feel like you before that it felt more me it was just ugly (laughs) and I think you know we only have ourselves to blame but also that was a really bad cultural moment for our age group like there were no good like there was no good design happening in that particular period and I stand by that I stand by that too we were out of I'm not using the, I don't want to say indie sleeves, but we were out of (laughs) the like twee grunge era. Yeah. And like really, I mean, you know, I stand by this. We'll have to get into this another time too. But like early 2010s was a fabulous time for runway design, like tons of inspiration, really good funding for every designer that was successful. So, you know, just like a good time for stylistic experimentation. And then like the cool new internet brands that I like found and then really started to love didn't come into play more until like 2018, 2017. So the lost years of like 2014 to 2016. Okay, so we give ourselves grace, you know? You have to give yourselves grace. (laughs) And you know what? Sometimes you just don't have to look at those photos. That's (laughs) my main thing. I'm like, we can't obsess so much. Like sometimes it's just done and dusted, you know? Sorry, it was the bad ones. Like, (laughs) I don't look at those years. Thanks for listening to Covered. Covered is hosted by me, Ruby Redstone. And hosted and produced by me, Natalie Brennan. Our artwork is by Gabriel Summer. Our music is by Ada Noel. You can find me on Instagram at Ruby Redstone, and my newsletter, Old Fashioned, is available on Patreon. I am New Balenciaga on Instagram, and my newsletter, ISO, is on Substack. All of our links are in the show notes. Okay, I think we're all covered. We're all covered. All covered. All covered.